Hi, everybody. On behalf of the Southeast ADA Center, the Burton Blatt Institute at Syracuse University, and the ADA National Network, I want to welcome you to this conversation, 504 at 50. I'm Barry Whaley. I'm the project director at Southeast ADA Center. 504 at 50 is a special interview series created in recognition of the 50th anniversary of the Rehabilitation Act. And in this series, Dr. Peter Blank speaks with leaders in the disability rights movement who advance the cause of equal rights through their tireless work. Today, we welcome our guest, Dr. Sachin Pavathran. Dr. Pavathran is the executive director of the U.S. Access Board. Our host, as always for this series, is Dr. Peter Blank, chairman of the Burton Blatt Institute. So, Peter, I'm pleased to have both of you with us today, and I will turn the microphone over to you. Thank you, Barry and Dr. Pavithran. It's such a pleasure to be with you today. You've been engaged actively in the disability community for many years as a researcher, as an advocate, as a commentator, and now you have a new role, a relatively new role as executive director of the United States Access Board. Uh, perhaps you can tell us a little bit about how you arrived at the Access Board and your personal history as engaged with the disability rights movement? Sure. I am a blind person. I immigrated to the U.S. right after high school to start my college here in the U.S. So I've been blind most of my life. And coming to the U.S., I was open to possibilities that I didn't have before. So seeing the access that people with disabilities have in education and in employment in the different settings that I didn't realize that I could have growing up. I'm originally from India. I grew up in Dubai and then I came to the U.S. And growing up in Dubai, I didn't, I wasn't aware about all the different things that someone with a disability could do, especially someone blind, what they could do. But when I came to the U.S., I was excited with the opportunities, but the more I learned about the possibilities and what is possible, even though we had all these different laws in the books, I got interested in what policy changes could look like. I met with a lot of other disability leaders, a lot of mentors who are disability leaders, and I joined an organization as well called the National Federation of the Blind which is a strong advocacy organization. That's where I started with the whole advocacy work. I've had many role models over the years, like you know, Judy Human, Andy Imperato, Fred Schroeder, just a lot of people who's been strong voices in the disability community over the years. So that's kind of what gave me a start becoming a disability rights advocate. When I finished college, I was more interested in computer programming and doing that kind of work, which is what my focus was. But when I started working with all these organizations and advocates, my interest changed and I didn't want to be a programmer anymore, but I rather want to see what I can do to influence policies, systems change. That's what led me into the work I do right now, getting more involved in accessibility, getting more involved in disability rights. And with all that work, I got an opportunity to be appointed under the Obama administration 
where I was appointed to be the member of the U.S. Access Board, where I became chair of the Access Board and also worked pretty closely with the Obama administration on various different uh, policies. And since then, have taken this role as the executive director of the U.S. Access Board. And I've been in this role for about a little over a year and a half. Well, that's quite a long and extensive history. You know, in the 1990s, I was working with the National Federation of the Blind on a case called the National Federation of the Blind versus Target Stores, which was one of the earliest cases. I was fortunate to co-counsel that with an extraordinary group of lawyers at Disability Rights Advocates. I'd like you to please take us through a little bit of the history of accessibility. You could even go back as far as at the beginnings of the ADA or before. And also interestingly, and perhaps sadly, why are we still having conversations today about whether or not the ADA requires and 504 require accessibility on the website? When we talk about accessibility, often the conversation goes to ADA, Americans with Disabilities Act. That's, that's the law that everyone thinks where accessibility all started. I wanna take it back much earlier than that, uh, to 1968, when the Architectural Barriers Act was passed. I think that's one of the starting points on accessibility. So ABA, which Architectural Barriers Act, which a lot of people are not aware about, was passed in 1968. And it was to make sure that all federal spaces are accessible. But as soon as that got passed, they realized that just having a piece of legislation was not good enough because how do you determine what is accessible? How do you determine what needs to be done and what the criteria needs to be? So it was soon evident that we need to have some, some standards on what that should look like. So that's how the U.S. Access Board came into existence to set standards for the ABA. And we've had a lot of legislations that has come since then addressing in the different, you know, different areas like Rehab Act and different parts of the ADA and just different areas focusing on accessibility. But I don't think accessibility is ever going to be at a place where it will be fully resolved because we are all way evolving over the years. You know, a lot of things do change technology changes, different areas do change. So we need to have an active role. But I don't think it's a bad thing, but it's just hard when there's still a question why things need to be accessible. That's where the problem still rises. I don't think we need to be explaining the value of accessibility. We should be talking about more solutions of you know, innovative ways of designing products so it's inclusive and accessible. That's the problem that we still face, that sometimes we still find ourselves reasoning and making a case for why things have to be accessible. Technologies are going to keep evolving and developing. We need to make sure industries and other entities who are working on, no matter what they're working on, accessibility is definitely part of what they do, not just something they have to do because they're either afraid of being sued or somebody has told them they need to do something differently. So why is there still confusion or attitudinal resistance? Or are you finding that most entities, public and private, understand the concepts now? 
part of it is I think the attitude is because there's still entities that really don't understand the value of including people with disabilities in everything that they do. Uh, we have come a long ways in the last 30 plus years since the ADA has passed, but there's still a misperception of the value for having people with disabilities as a contributing member of communities. Also, businesses not really understanding the potential of valuing you know, disabled people on what they could be, how that could result in their profit margin or other areas. Some sectors of the communities that we work in has probably figured it out. Like some of the tech companies have figured it out. The big tech giants have figured it out, even though they're not perfect, but they've come a long ways. But some areas like automobile industries are still struggling with this law conversation, for example, or autonomous vehicles. But there's really not a good prototype out there what a final autonomous vehicle would look like for someone with a disability. So it's, I don't have the magic answer of what would shift the dialogue right away. It's just, you know, as humans, there's still questions out there why they should invest dollars or energy in making everything very inclusive. I think the dialogue has changed, but it's, it's not changing fast enough. So tell us, please, about then the role of the U.S. Access Board in all of this and the history of the Access Board, perhaps, and what led to its formation, uh, particularly in light of we're coming on the 50th anniversary of the Rehabilitation Act of 1973 as a seminal marker of what we have and still have to accomplish. So I indicated about the legislation that was passed in 1968. So the Architecture Barriers Act in 1968 that was passed in 68 and soon realized we need the standards. So under the Rehabilitation Act of 73, the U.S. Access Board came into existence. That's our initial charge was to write the standards for the ABA. And since then, we've been given other authorities by Congress to work on different areas, such as you know, medical diagnostic equipment, Section 508, which is the Web Accessibility Standards. You know, we've written the guidelines for ADA. So we've been given charge for a lot of different things over the years. So our role is not just the ABA anymore. So we focus on ICT, transportation, the built environment. So we cover the whole spectrum of you know, the infrastructure where we access on a daily basis, whether it's within your work environment or with your transportation, whatever we do. So that's where we are right now. We are a regulatory agency. We write regulations standards and guidelines for all the different sectors that we have the authority to work on. We provide technical assistance and trainings, and also we enforce the APA, which is the initial charge we got, which is the Architecture Barriers Act. So those three are like our big area of focus. The one misperception that a lot of people have since the U.S. Access Board works on a lot of different standards and guidelines a lot of times is this confusion. Why doesn't the access board just write uh, stands for the various things that still need standards and guidelines? The only problem is the way our agency is set up, the only way we can initiate those rulemaking or those regulatory processes once Congress gives us the authority. We can't initi self-initiate 
working on any uh, regs unless we have an authority to work on. We can put our best practices, you know, best practices, just best practices. There's really not much to it other than, uh, you know, it's not enforceable. Again, the other piece to our work is we write the standards and guidelines for these different areas, but the agencies that has given the authority to enforce it, they need to adopt it and enforce it. So we don't enforce all the standards we write. We write the standards and DOJ or transportation or HHS, whoever has the charge to enforce for enforcement, they are the ones who does the enforcing. Where the, the only enforcement authority we have is the ABA, which is the Architectural Barriers Act, so for federal spaces. So what are you working on now and what are your aspirations for the future at the accident? So we do have, you know, different rulemakings that we are involved in, like public rights of way. We're working on self-service transaction machines. We are starting to initiate some rulemaking around vehicle charging stations. One of the areas we haven't done a whole lot in the past when it comes to ICT. We've done 508, uh, which we've done over the years, but... We're trying to expand more in the digital space and also just the frontier when it comes to what's happening technology-wise here. I gave an example earlier about autonomous vehicles. What can we as an agency, even though we don't have a direct authority on it, how we can influence the industry in making sure AVs are accessible in the future. So, so trying to stay on top of technology is, is a big focus for me and a drive that I'm pushing the agency also towards. Not saying that we will stop focusing on the other areas, like the built environment and the other parts of transportation. We do built environment really well. I think we want to step up in the future of technology, what's happening so that we're not trying to retrofit. We're not coming in, in the latter part of the game so that developers and designers have to figure accessibility out on the tail end. Does virtual reality fall under the areas in which you're looking at, given that virtual reality, for example, is talked about a lot now with regard to mental health resilience and with regard to sort of uh, personal well-being and so forth? We have had some very, very minimal conversation about virtual reality. It is not because we're not interested we just don't know that space really well so we're still trying to figure out what's the best way we could influence you know virtual reality on how can we best address accessibility in that space so yes there has been conversation but not to the extent uh, that you know we don't have any kind of useful information shared in that space yet So when you were growing up, obviously the world was very different technologically. What was it like as a K through 12 student for you? And how do you see the experience? How do you evaluate the experience of most K through 12 students today in terms of access to the virtual world, the technological world and so forth? So I grew up. I didn't grow up in the U.S., so my experience of schooling was very different from any student that went through K-12 around my time in the U.S. So my experience growing up in Dubai, 
all my education was done because my mother read all my textbooks to me. I didn't have any kind of accessibility, no accessible textbooks, no information was accessible. So my entire education was dependent on how my mom read all my textbooks and any kind of curriculum associated with my kids report to me. That's, that was my access right there. So not the best experience growing up because if it wasn't for my mom, I, there's no way I would have finished K-12. Things have changed a lot, even in Dubai and other places, including here, things have changed uh, quite a bit. Technology has have become more mainstream in what students with disabilities use. There's more options available for mainstream education. And, but is it perfect? No, it's not perfect because there's still a lot of shortage when it comes to experience, special ed teachers, especially in the blindness space where teacher for visually impaired, which they're often known as TBIs, that there's shortage, huge shortage of quality TBIs. So how does a blind student go through the program when there's such a shortage? It, there's always issue where they're not getting the quality that, of education that they need because they don't have the resources, schools don't have the resources to provide. Then we still struggle with accessible instructional materials. That's still a huge barrier. Some publishers are good, better than the others. So K-12 is still struggling with some of that issues. And that doesn't end that K-12 is the same issue that still exists in higher education as well. Accessible instructional materials, that is still the biggest challenge. And do you find that there are resources available in current federal funding to further the agenda for a totally inclusive, for a fully inclusive society technologically? I think there's a lot more focus being put on that, especially in, in the higher education space. There's a lot more focus on what accessible platforms should look like and what universities and other entities providing higher education should be doing. The resource, I don't think it's a resource issue coming from the federal government. I think it's a bigger issue with the universities making a priority to make it a reality. In higher education, some universities have stepped up and are doing a good job in making inclusive learning experiences for all these students. And there are a lot of universities that haven't even made it a priority at all. What do they do when they procure any kind of learning management systems? What do they do when they get whatever instructional materials? How are they working with publishers? That's still not a priority for a lot. As a disabled student, you can't just apply to any university and expect whatever they are providing for inclusive learning is going to be the same as another university. It's hit or miss right still. Instead of the federal, I think the federal government is doing their share. Can they do more? I'm sure they can do a lot more. The Department of Education could do a lot more. But I think the universities should be held accountable as well because these are not new topics that we're talking about. These have been things that we've been pushing for years. So the universities can't continue to use the excuse that you know, they don't have enough resources to do it. It's just they haven't prioritized and they don't seem like they have, 
the argument I hear always is, well, we don't have enough disabled students to make that resource worthwhile. Now, of course, a big issue is transition from school to employment. The employment rates of people with disabilities still are lagging compared to people without disabilities. Perhaps you could comment on that issue, both from the perspective from the blind community and more generally cross disability. Are we doing or how can we do a better job to basically go from college to careers, to go from college to meaningful work as many people with disabilities, even who graduate college, still are not in the workforce. This is a very interesting topic, and it's controversial at times because we have the rehab services, the vocational rehabilitation, which has been in existence for many years, but we still find huge unemployment among people with disabilities. So why is that not changing? Is the systems that we have in place not good enough? Is it not doing what it's been set up to do? Or are we not empowering people with disabilities to get the employment that they need? So I don't think there's one set answer. I think it's also important to look at what programs we have right now in, in place, such, such as vocational rehabilitation, which is a huge portion of the community that goes to find employment. Are they being challenged to do what they've been set up to do? Are they doing everything they're supposed to be doing? I question that often because we've had the rehab services for a long time. Why is this number not changing? So I'm not saying vocational rehabilitation is the only answer to better employment for people with disabilities to make a big shift, but that is a big program that should be making the difference when it comes to the amount of dollars that is going through our rehab services. Then the other piece is also employers. Well, why is still there the stigma of hiring people with disabilities? You know, we've been talking about employers making uh, hiring people with disabilities a common practice, but it's still in some spaces, I think it's improved, but it's still something that I feel like we're challenged with. We can't really get all employees to buy into this whole idea of including people with disabilities. Not just hiring people with disabilities to do the typical work or kind of employment that we find most people with disabilities doing, that it's just like accessibility or something. You know, getting people with disabilities to be part of broader employment space of, you know, something that doesn't have to do or anything to do with disability. So kind of challenging employers also. But then the other piece is encouraging people with disabilities to go into tracks that is typically not where you find people with disabilities working in or focusing on, you know, like the STEM areas and other areas that you don't find. There are people with disabilities there, but not as much as we would want. So those are, I think, the few things that comes to my mind. I think we really need to take a look at you know, existing programs, but if they're really doing what they've been charged to do, then also challenge the employers, their hiring practices, and encouraging people with disabilities to consider tracks that's not typically taken up by people with disabilities. Are you optimistic? For the future with regard to the opportunities that present themselves and 
what role do you see the Access Board continuing to play in the future? I'm definitely optimistic. I think the disability rights community is the kind of community that's going to keep pushing. There's going to be hurdles that come up. And, you know, there might be bumps in the road, but I think the disability rights community is always going to keep pushing for change. And we need to keep working on those things. Like I said earlier, accessibility is not something that's going to be completely resolved and not ever going to get to a place where we'll never be talking about accessibility because things keep evolving and then we need to have new ways of doing things. So maybe the conversation might change around accessibility on how we approach accessibility and the conversation around the importance of accessibility might change. But the work that the disability rights community at large are doing, I think will continue to grow stronger because there are great disability rights leaders still there and uh, new people coming into the space who have great leadership ideas and skills. As far as the access board is concerned, you know, as long as I'm in this role, I'm trying to grow our focus areas, getting broader into like the digital space, the technology space, like I said earlier, so that we are more in the forefront of some of this conversation that's happening in the industry, so that we don't have to come in the tail end to try to retrofit. Because regulatory work takes time, and we don't want regulations the only way that dictates what accessibility design should look like. We want to be in conversation with the industries so that they are taking into consideration you know, what accessible design should look like. So I must ask, of course, we're in the midst of a pandemic, the COVID pandemic or endemic. How has that changed the landscape in many ways for your interests and those of the Access Board, for example, the terrific increase in telework and telecommuting and virtual learning and so forth? So the pandemic has been a great learning experience. You know, in spite of all the tragedies that has happened, we've learned a lot in the last couple of years. The way things were shifting so fast, becoming digital, made very clear that digital accessibility is still a huge issue which has been given a lot more attention in the last couple of years than years before. Tech companies have stepped up like Microsoft, Apple, platforms like Zoom, Teams, Google Meets. They were all not really that accessible in the past. You know, Teams and all those other platforms, which are very similar now, they've come a long way in the last two years than they ever have in the 10 years prior to that. So how technology has improved in the last couple of years is significant, but there's still a lot of barriers. You know, one of the biggest barriers as soon as the pandemic hit was lack of accessible information when it came to vaccination or when it came to like COVID testing or self-testing of you know COVID testing kits. All those still were huge barriers. There's still a barrier when it comes to how do you test, uh, you know, do self-testing at home, you know, when you're blind. There's some technology out there that's coming out, but it's still not perfect. So, you know, there is a lot of lessons that we have learned that, that we need to work on. But I think, you know, in the disability community, we've been kind of pushing the conversation around 
what employment should look like for uh, people with disabilities. One of the biggest barriers being transportation. How does someone get to their place of employment if there's no good transportation? And also finding place to live because you have a disability. You tend to live in a place that you can get to your place of employment a lot easier, which sometimes tend to be more expensive. And a lot often people have to leave their support systems behind because of transportation. That conversation has shifted because of telework and this whole remote working dialogue that's going on. In the past, when you talked about teleworking, it was always this thing that you never said because everyone frowned about telework. And now in two years, like everybody wants telework. So even though the disability community has been pushing for telework for decades, in the last two years, the dialogue has shifted to it being one of the best things ever granted for employees. But there's also concern with telework. And this is my personal opinion. When I look into the future, if everyone with a disability is wanting telework for one reason or another, whatever that reason might be, it's fine. But we've been working really hard, fighting really hard over the last many decades to make sure that people with disabilities are visible, you know, whether it's in employment space, whether it's in community. My fear is if we keep pushing for everyone to just telework, especially if you have a disability and not give the option to have in-person work also, I don't want it to go down the path where employers automatically, because they don't want to deal with accessibility issues that they might have in their physical space, immediately say, okay, this person's a disabled person, so let's just make them telework so that we don't have to address the accessibility issue that might happen in physical space. That's one of my worries. The other worry is when you're not visible, you're forgotten. So let's not forget all the work that has gone into making people with disabilities visible in all these different spaces by just becoming an icon in your Zoom meeting. We need to be visible in all spaces and we need to be mindful when we're pushing for telework and virtual, all these virtual options that's out there. That does not become the only way that people with disabilities function. Well, I want to congratulate you and thank you for your time today. It's very important that you convey the excellent work of the Access Board to our listeners. And I will give you the last comment. If you had any additional remarks that you'd like to make or issues you think are important that the community should pay attention to in terms of the work you're doing and others are doing. Well, thanks for having me join, be part of this uh, podcast. I think it's a great thing to bring some of this information forward. Uh, in closing, all I would say is I think no matter which space you belong to, whether you work in the disability space or not, it's always to, it's important to make sure people with disabilities are speaking for themselves and they are at the table voicing their thoughts and ideas and concerns. We still find others speaking for people with disabilities, which is fine. I think we need allies. but. People with disabilities definitely need to be taken to lead, and I encourage upcoming leaders who are disabled to 
really make themselves available in opportunities that could help change some of this dialogue. Well, that's outstanding. I thank you again for your time. And uh, Barry, I turn it back to you. A great interview and very informative for our listeners. We look forward to future discussions with you. Thank you. Oh, thank you, Peter. Listeners, our guest for this interview has been the Executive Director of the United States Access Board, Dr. Sachin Pavathran. With over 20 years of direct involvement in the development, testing, and training for assistive technology, Dr. Pavathran has given lectures and training in accessible information technology for individuals and groups, as well as assisted in the evaluation of products related to web accessibility and design. So we thank him very much for joining us today. Listeners, as a reminder, if you liked what you heard and you want to listen to other interviews, you can find those interviews at our website, Section 504 at 50. Section 504 at 50 series is produced by the Southeast ADA Center, the Burton Blatt Institute at Syracuse University, and is a collaboration with the Disability Inclusive Employment Policy Rehabilitation Research and Training Center. Again, thank you for listening. And we look forward to seeing you at our next interview.